Good morning, church. My name is Mika Sales, and I've been a member of this church and this community since 2010. I have um, not been here since early March, and as uh, the saints used to say in my church tradition, it is good to be in the house of the Lord. I'll be reading today from 1 Samuel 31, 1 through 13, and 2 Samuel 1, verses 11 through 27. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinabab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through it with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Then Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshen, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. 2 Samuel 1, 11 through 27. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an, an Amicalite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Joboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty was defiled, and the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the vow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. 
Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they, than, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church, and we come to the end of 1 Samuel and on into 2 Samuel this week. And the last chapter of 1 Samuel and the first chapter of 2 Samuel are like one chapter, as Samuel was originally written as one book. But you can understand why the folks who put the Old Testament together split it up. 1 Samuel is the beginning and tragic end of Saul's reign as king. And 2 Samuel is the hopeful beginning and reign of David as king. And even though King Saul was not sure, or, you know, not too sure, about this God-promised transition of power, God was making good on his promise to make a way over Saul's dead body So his new choice for king, David, could take his place. Saul and his son, Jonathan, die, the Bible tells us, while defending their territory against Philistine invasion, which means in in one battle, the national leader and his potential replacements are not just killed, but Saul is so injured, the Bible tells us, he He has to fall on his own sword, and during the post-battle cleanup, the Philistines strip Saul and Jonathan's armor, probably strip them naked, behead them, and then strap their decapitated bodies to the wall, not only as an offering to the Philistine gods, but to clown them. Though they went down fighting, they were clowned. In defeat and disgraced by their enemies. In their death, we must recognize, like David does, that regardless of the circumstances, death strips us bare and disgraces, dismembers, and clowns our God given glory for all to see. And it is in David's eulogy, if you will, that we find in First, the first chapter of 2 Samuel, David's eulogy for his nemesis Saul and his best friend Jonathan that we can see three things I want to bring out today. First, that death is tragic for the just and the unjust. Secondly, death is the life of believers. And finally, death is a tool in God's hands. When David hears about Saul and Jonathan's death, in verse 11 in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, the Bible tells us that David tore 
his clothes. And tearing your clothes was an ancient outward expression of sorrow, of mourning, of, of sadness, of, of being torn up, right? Tore up, right? And, and David leads his men and us to recognize that death is tragic for the just and the unjust, right? For, for the good and for the bad, for the hated and the haters, because we as human beings share a common enemy and common judgment. It's not Saul. It, it is not Saul in the story who is the penultimate enemy, right? I hope you can see that. It's the Philistines, right? Who have it out for all Israelites, just and unjust. They just want to shame Israel. That's why David mentions the glory of Israel is slain upon a hill. They, they just want to dehumanize God's people. They just want to displace them. Look at how Saul's death by the Philistine enemy attacks, affects everyone. Look back at verse 7 in chapter 31. It says here, And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, right, and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, the Bible says they abandoned their cities and they fled and the Philistines came and occupied those areas. They lived in their homes, right? They lived in their townships. The, the next day, the Bible tells us, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines. So carry the good news to the house of their idols. I mean, sorry, to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his arm in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But, but, but when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men came and they, they took his body off the wall. And then look what David expresses, right? In his eulogy, in verses 19 and 20, in, 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 the, in chapter 1, he says, Your glory, right? O Israel is slain on your high places. Um, how the mighty have fallen, tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. David expresses what we all feel. Death is just wrong. It's wrong. That feeling is right. Because human beings were, were not originally created to have our souls separated from their shells, right? To, to have us vacate our bodies and in doing so, leave our place and space and life with others and with God and join God on earth. It is why it is so disgraceful in this passage that they mistreat the bodies of Saul and his sons because the body is so closely tied to the soul. The image and likeness and the glory of God that God put in us is expressed and he created them to be expressed through our bodies. David says here that when Saul died as the representative of Israel's glory as being the king, that what? The glory of the people was slain. 
He is assuming and encouraging that, that we all should join in in some way, to be jolted, that, that it's right to feel uncomfortable. He invites us into our humanity, right, to be uncomfortable and out of place and lost when, when someone dies who bears the image of God. And when it is unexpected sometimes, it just reemphasizes how wrong it is for anyone to die, that everyone who is anyone is under the curse, y'all of a common enemy, death. In our passage today, death comes via war with the Philistines who are but representative and, and point to and are agents, if you will, of the common enemy of us all, death, who employs the same merchants to deal us death, right? Sin, the world, uh, uh, Satan, you know, that, that, that ended up killing Saul and Satan. Sin, the world, and let me say the systems and philosophies uh, and Satan are, are all there. And, and like the arrows, if you will, that were launched into the sky, Satan and death and its sinister agents do, and sin and its sinister agents do not respect or consider how good or bad the person on the other end is and was and whether they were just or unjust or went to church every week or didn't. The agents of death, if you will, are bent on and created for corrupting and degrading and eventually separating us from the life of God that he has given all of us. It's everyone's tragedy. Isn't it interesting that you can attend the funeral of someone you don't even know and lose it? I've been to funerals. I don't know them people. I don't know whether they're good. I don't know whether they're bad. I don't know whether they have a, a, a criminal record. I don't know whether they hate the way I look. I have no idea. But when I'm there in the emotion of the funeral, like David is calling people to enter into, I can lose it when I see the mama or the kids or the family or even how, uh, how few people are there will sometimes make me hurt. Because any funeral, y'all, we go to is essentially our own funeral. Like any funeral we go to, we can say the glory, image, and likeness of God, like David says in, in his eulogy, is slain and laid out before us. And, and in that, we can see our own destiny and everyone's destiny right there, put there by a common enemy in death. We will all die and lose those we love to death. And our economy, or sorry, our common enemy, death, is at work because of our common judgment. God told Saul, if you go back through the prophet Samuel, right, you're going to die for your sins, right? Through, it's kind of complicated how Saul told, I mean, Samuel told him that, but he's going to die for your sins, that his disobedient ways would lead to his judgment by God and eventually before God. But the reason David says we all should mourn and respect that mourning is that Saul's judgment of death is simply an amplified, put on blast, business all out in the street of the judgment before God that we all have declared on us, that we all 
will face, right? It's interesting how, um, you know, when I read these commentaries and, and, and I hear people talking about this passage and hear people talking about Saul, that, that, that Saul's life, we look at him, we're like, look at this bad leader, look at this bad person, right? But Saul's life, if we read the scripture correctly, right, in the context of the gospel, Saul's life has been exposed, not so we simply can be warned how we shouldn't live or be like him and to see how he is so bad and therefore we are so good or David is so good compared to Saul, but to see what we are capable of. And ways David could sin, and we have and could sin. We should feel, hear me, more connected to Saul's judgment than standing in judgment of Saul. Right? Because the Bible says, and I quote, it is appointed for man, humankind, everybody to die once. And after that comes the judgment for good people, for bad people, for evil people. No, nope, it just says the judgment, period. And it says, for we must, hear this word carefully in Scripture, for we must all, the Bible says, appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, that the wages of sin is death and we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why the glory of Israel is slain. Because we all have fallen short. It represents the shortness, right? It represents that we're limited. It represents that we've sinned. It represents that we all are headed there. Religious and spiritual or not, Christian or not, right? We, we, we are all fallen, sinful, and broken, and bear the judgment of sin and headed to judgment before God for it. Here's a sobering thought echoed throughout the message of the Bible. Like what happened to Saul, and like what will happen to David, and Solomon, and all the kings that follow, right? I, I, I can guarantee you that just like them, or anybody who ever lives, our sins, brokenness, even the ways we have sinned against each other, has and will catch up to us. You can't outrun it. You can't outgood it either, right? And when I say outgood it, let me tell you how human beings outgood it. We outgood it by saying we're not as bad as them. That ain't good enough to escape it. You're going to be before God in judgment. Right? Some of us experienced that in our bodies and lives more than others. Some of us have felt the judgment of God, right? Some of us have gotten sick and hurt and be like, look, this body ain't going to make it. It's going to break down, right? We've been with family members. And, and, and if you've ever buried a parent or somebody close to you, 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 you kind of it kind of changes you. It, there's an indelible mark on you, right, that kind of says, wait a minute, Sin and brokenness in this world and Satan and, and the things that are the curse upon these bodies, it will catch us. But I'm here to tell you, the Bible teaches we will give a clear confession. Our lives will confess to our brokenness and our sinfulness before the Lord. All will be laid out as, unden as an undeniable 
expo expression of who and how we have been on earth. And death is like the warrant, y'all. Death is like the, the arresting uh, uh, official, right? Death, death is the bailiff kind of bringing us and kneeling us before God in and at the judgment. We're all living a story with a tragic, broken, common plot, common antagonist and storyline. And death reminds us of that. Which means, here's some good news with some bad news, and it makes the good news better. <laughs> Which means if you are a believer, a Christian, a church person, a follower of Christ, you too will not escape the judgment and after death, right? But for believers... You're freed from the fear of that judgment because of God's forgiveness and adoption through Christ. But death continues to be, therefore, an integral part of what it means to be a believer. All right, hear me. Death is part of the life God calls his followers to live. I'm going to speak to the believers for a minute. So if you're not a believer, you get to listen. Get to listen on a family discussion. You might even laugh, right? Now you might be like, see, y'all ain't no better, right? See, look what God's taking y'all, right? Okay, that's fine. But wait till you hear the truth and power of it, right? That might be refreshing and surprising for you who are not believers to hear. But look at verse 1 and 2 and then 6 and 7 in chapter 31. If we look at verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gaboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and the sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishuah, the, the sons of Saul. Right? And then look what it says in verse 6 and 7. It says, Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. Then look what happens in chapter 21. I mean, verse 21 and 22 in chapter 1. It says, David in his, in his usually says, From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Jonathan Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. People, the people of God in this passage, did you notice what happened to them? They died. They not only died, they were displaced, displaced taken out of their homes, disgraced and suffered under the attack of the Philistines in their territory. 
It wasn't like they went over to Philistine territory. No, the Philistines came after them, right? Just cause what? They lived out their God lives and, and engaged in it, right? It wasn't even like they went out or did anything. The Philistines came and attacked them and got them as they were just living out their lives in holiness here, right? And they were disgraced and defiled just by being who they were, just because they were hated. I have an illustration here, but I won't use it. You can look it up yourself. The illustration Cornell West dropped after September 11th when a woman asked, why does the world hate us? Right? He says, you just hate it. <laughs> That's the abridged version, right? You just hate it. That's why. Jesus later had to double down on this truth to his disciples, right? Because they thought, hey, hey we, we with the Lord, right? We, we walking with Christ. Yeah, God, when are we going to get our mansion? When are we going to get our, our 40 acres and a mule? When are we going to get ours from the Romans? And Jesus says, guess what, y'all? Watch my life. Watch me. As I suffered and died, because I was living in a fallen and sinful world, you sinners saved by grace, my people, my children, my followers, as part of the life you're called to live, you too, welcome, will suffer and die. And that will actually become a sign of your life with me. And knowing that, embracing that is part of what it means to be a believer and follower of Christ. Right? And even more so, right, for us believers, because as David emphasized, these people were with shields, right? They were standing for and in the, in the call to glorify the Lord in the world, and that is offensive to the enemies of humankind, sin and Satan, this fallen world, and its systems and institutions. But this is not just about, a, about being with and in the world, but a life lived, hear me, for the unjust world. Look back at verse, look at back at chapter 31, right? In, in verse 2, we just read, and, and, and the people who were overtook are Saul and his sons, right? They both were struck down, the sons of Saul. Then the Bible says the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And then look down at then verse 8, we see that, 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 that Saul is struck. Let's just read verse 8. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and who else? His three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped his armor and, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the people, good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth. They fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, now that, remember that was a group that Saul actually uh, helped save and nobody wanted to help, right? He went across the river to care for him. Remember that way back? These are people like, hey, look, homeboy did us right. We're going to do him right, right? So they went in a danger, dangerous spot to get his body, right? And all the valiant men rose and went all night and took the body of Saul. Wait a minute, there's an ant and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. 
And then there's eulogy, right? In, in, in chapter 1 and verse 22 and 23, it says, from the, again, from the blood of the stain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan, turn not back. And the sword of Saul, return not empty, right? Saul and Jonathan will be loved and lovely. Now, here, I want you to hear this line. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Then look down at verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. That was his dude. That was his best friend. In the commentaries, much is made about how wrong Saul was, how bad his leadership was, how when he goes and, you know, gets into the, uh, the chromacy and, it, 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 you know, gets the dead to come up and goes to the witch and all that stuff, how he might not have been a believer because of his actions and evil things he engaged in. But, but the main thing I want you to see here with that in mind, is the loyalty of Jonathan who helped save David's life at runtime, who would easily be accepted by all the commentators and all us good people as a true believer. But what does he do? He goes into battle with and in service to his lost father. David even says, right, that in life and death, they were not divided. That Jonathan stayed faithful to Saul, even though he could have teamed up with David and dealt with him, right? He went into battle with him for the glory of God, calling his calling to Israel and his love for his crazy, theologically and morally off father. Do y'all see that? Don't you know as believers we are called to die with and for this world sometimes? To give our lives to communicate and share and defend and even shield them. Like the people we think are immoral or off or, or, or not living right. To shield them with God's love and mercy unto our death. You know, too many of us, we, we on the other end, right? We trying to assassinate and destroy and disgrace and demean this world and, and, and their theories. And even, here's what's so hard for me, even each other as believers who we disagree with, we pull back, let them get ashamed. We leave each other alone. We turn on each other in social media and, and ads and articles and, and we turn on our neighbors. It's ele election season, season and social justice is exhibit number one and how believers refuse to die for the good of each other in their neighbors. We would rather turn on the king We'd rather turn on the people around us, right? So that what? So that we can live, so that we can look righteous, so that you, we can have a separate eulogy than the world. We want the good, righteous eulogy. We don't want to, want to be associated with the world. We want to be the ones who stood up against what was evil, right? So, but here's the problem. So that we can prosper. 
so that we can shine in our glory and, and righteousness. And, and the Lord is saying, we lay down our lives for the world and each other like a friend of God to the fallen and broken and to those who, are, who will not get better or more prosperous in our assessment and may even cost us our lives. Our reputation may even be disgraced, just like Jonathan's, along with theirs, right? Who, who appear to, those who appear to deserve to be disgraced. That in God's dealings with Saul, Faithful Jonathan would die and faithful people would lose their family members and lose their homes and lose their their livelihood and be honored for it by the God-inspired eulogy as tragic but full of God's glory. I received this book with stories of martyrs and I was bothered with some of the pictures in it. I'm not going to get into that now and what some of the implications were. So I called Brittany Gardner one of our global missionaries, missionaries, she told me something that changed my view on what it means to be here as a believer and not just be here, but be in and for the broken and lost and sinful and suffering here on earth around us. You know what she said? These books on martyrdom make you feel like the missionaries did something special. I was like, shoot, yeah, they did. They went out there and people killed them, beheaded them, hung them, whatever. She was like, no. You know that missionaries assume as part of their calling that they're not coming back? So the book of martyrs is just like, hey, I um, went to play football and I twisted my ankle, right? Or I got an injury or somebody tackled me hard and I got hurt. We wouldn't be like, hey, look, I played football and uh, I got a scrape on my knee. Would we say, yeah, uh-huh, and, or, or like Kelly, who does, does a lot of cooking. Oh, I got a little burn on my finger, or I got a little cut on my hand. And it's sort of like, I feel so sorry, but she knows, right? Sometimes she cut and scrape and burn and keep going, right? It's it almost like it's part of the, what's expected, And Brittany was telling me that they realize that they might not come back, that they may never be found again, that they are going to die and suffer, and that this is part of the job. Death, disease, distress, and suffering, you know, is an everyday reality if you're going to be a missionary. Well, guess what, believers? Jesus said, I'm leaving you in the world. I'm not taking you with me. He almost took you to a foreign land and left you there. And at this time, we have this pre-physical death eulogy as believers that we already know in our application. Maybe we should have it be the sixth question in the new members class. Are you ready to die? (laughs) Are you ready to lose? Are you ready to suffer? Are you ready to not be as successful and happy as everybody else? That we are resigned to lose our lives, to lose our livelihood, to suffer, to not have it so good or as good as we can, to be distressed and disgraced and made to look foolish. The world actually puts us up and beheads us, right? Like, like we look crazy, like our God ain't working for us. Don't you know that's, some, that's the story of believers? Look at them. God ain't helping them. They've been in there praying all day. They're reading the Bible. They still got the same bank account. 
They still got the same bills, the pink slip bill, right? To be distressed and disgraced and made to look foolish and get ambushed with the world, with the so-called sinners sometimes, with the halfway godly, with those who don't believe like we do, that we are inseparable in life and death with those who may not know the Lord, but who need mercy and presence and our help and our hope, that death is an essential part of life for those who are faithfully going to work for and with this world, who are neighbors or with the world, who are, who are reaching and being used up for and with a sinful, for, for and with a sinful and suspect world. Let me explain to you. Our callings as believers are wrapped up and twisted up faithfully and righteously. Where we should be intertwined at times with the lives of people who are under serious judgment and distress and despair because of their own sins. So much so that when they go down and die and suffer, we might too. I was talking to somebody, believer, who almost died from COVID a couple weeks ago, friend of ours. And he said, I think it opened my eyes to a clearer call of ministry and love and connection to my wife and my kids and for this world. We may not have COVID-19, all of us, or have suffered almost dying from it. Believers, your life is terminal. The gospel is not benign. You will die. You will suffer because of the life of the gospel at work in you. And if it is not benign and is not safe, So will we let the life that the Lord has given us have us? Man, I protest all the time. I don't want to die. I don't want to suffer. I want to be a missionary for the world. I want to use the world to get some stuff, right? I want to be, you know, one of those fake missionaries who really are kind of like colonists and stuff and imperialists. That's, that's the way I want to be. I'm coming to give y'all Jesus, but boy, your stuff look good. I, that's, that's me. I want it. I'm living in my neighborhood right now because it's a nice house on the cul-de-sac and all that. I, I, half, most of the time, I'm not thinking about anybody else's suffering for anybody else's faith. I just want them to keep their yard straight, my yard straight, and we all get good property values at the end of it. In the streets, and protest for the born and mistreated and the unborn and mistreated and our social media's do's and don'ts and our non-judgmental relationship with people who are in a different place and path in their sexual discovery and journey. That's where we are. And some of you have been outside the abortion clinics, right? Marching. We even had a ministry of women going into strip clubs to care for the dancers in there. What must it be like to see folk coming out the club? Ain't that sister so-and-so? What's going on? Right? Many of us are protesting in the streets and now may be called 
to align yourself with the Breonna Taylors and George Floyds of the world. You know what's going to happen for many of us? You're going to face social and religious death. Standing and kneeling with and for those who many see as violent and unappreciative? Will we suffer disgrace because we want to heal the relationships between the community and police officers on both sides? Folk calling you a sellout on one side and folk calling you uninformed and against America on the other side? Believers are called to be in the middle. Like I said, to be like a registered independent as far as it calls, as far as we operate in this world. And independents get killed by the left or the right. Like the, like the war here, we're in the valley. We're not on either side. Even shielding, right? People from, from, from shame, people who you feel personally like have brought their own suffering on themselves. They haven't worked hard. They were on drugs. They were doing this. They were in the wrong place, right? They should have listened. They should have gotten on the ground. All these things. Will we be willing to be disgraced and eulogized for this new generation of justice and mercy and grace? Will we be willing to be displaced from our Americanism and how we've lived, how we live out in our democracy for the gospel? A eulogy is already pre-written for you believers. It's time to walk in it. Which ultimately leads us to this final point here, that death is a tool in the hands of God. Now, the death of Saul is different than most. The whole world is told in earlier chapters that God's going to take him out, that he will let sin, Satan, his fallen world, execute his orders. That's okay, right? He deserves it, we, we think. That's good. Saul going up makes sense. But what about Jonathan and the army? We would say they're casualties of Saul's sin. True, sort of. But we have to raise our sovereignty game a bit, y'all. And also accept that they were not casualties, like casually died, accidentally died. Because the Bible teaches us there are no casualties in death. Because God is not capricious, right? He's just not, or casual in lives being lost. We only call and think of it as casualties when we can't put our determining factors on why somebody died. But the, determin the determination of who dies is above us. It's above our pay grade, as people like to say. It happens up there, and it is not, only under, it's not always understood or clear to us. That's why funerals, it's, okay, it's like human to say, why God? Because we don't know. God never shoots into a closed door or into an apartment to serve his divine warrant without knowing the who, why, and what is on the other end of death. We do that. Our officials can do that. But we can take comfort that God does not close his eyes and casually take anyone out. It all plays a part in his plan 
for redemption. You know, one major reason why death by police shootings is so tragic to our Constitution is because it's a failure. Like, like there's a part of the, the system of government and law that has been skipped or missed to, to, you know, to be charged, judged, and, 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 and face judgment executed on the street by the pulling of a trigger instead of being able to sit before a trial of your peers. Something wrong with that. Whether I'm not trying to lay blame, it's the police's fault or it's the person's fault. I'm not laying blame with anybody. I'm saying it's tragic when it happens. Manslaughter, involuntary or not, all the different degrees of murder are things we do and can be charged for. And the Lord, guess what, is not guilty of that. But he can, hear me, use even those broken things to fulfill his requirement of our death for his divine and perfect purposes. The Lord is the only righteous one in the whole formula, right? He's the only one righteous enough to arrest us from life itself in a move of being divine officer, judge, jury, and the one who will execute perfect, divine, and unquestionable justice in and over our lives. That's why this eulogy is truly a prayer about God's plan. The Bible teaches us that God can draw a perfect line with a crooked and twisted stick. And I'll be sharing from that idea on the crooked, twisted stick, drawing a straight line at our outdoor service later today. So come out to that. But it means that we mourn for our part of it and are not understanding how what God is perfectly drawing with death. But we know that death is a part of his perfect plan of redemption. Saul's death, and as we saw in the death of his sons, meant that God's plan and path for David to become king would be clearer now that Saul is gone and even Jonathan is gone. Now, the commentators make such a big deal about this, they don't talk about the other things, but it is true. Saul and Jonathan's death ushered in the redemption and rescue of God's people through David and the world through Israel, right? The life and then death of Saul and Jonathan was used by God to bless and rescue his people from the Philistines. Look with me at verse 24 and 27 again. It says, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothe you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How, my, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war perished. God used Saul, as sinful and broken as he was, and Jonathan's faithfulness to prepare. Y'all, y'all hear me? To prepare, to clothe, to ready Israel to meet its new destiny under their new king, David. Right? That's what Saul did. He got his people ready for it. But also their death to make, they died to make a way for God's plan and purpose to be fulfilled in their lives. The Bible says this, how precious is the life and then the death of his own people in the sight of the Lord. That the Lord uses their lives and their triumphs through their death kind of in a precious exchange. He gives and takes our lives to fund and to fuel and to be used in his plan to redeem us all and bring his kingdom of love and grace into the world. And that precious importance is seen in the life and through and and. and through our lives and at our death, Jonathan's life 
showed David love. Saul's life showed him the devastation of sin as a leader. And their death called David towards the Lord and ushered him into his destiny. Now watch this. I admit that is easier to see from a story we can already tell. Oh, yeah, it makes sense why Jonathan and Saul died. Yeah, because David, we know because we know the story. But at ground level in a three-dimensional world, we don't always see what we need to know in order to mourn and love and live and die. We can see how the deaths, Brianna Taylor, Jacob Blake, and George Floyd, I know y'all tired of hearing about that too, right? Believers or not, we're not for nothing. God has used their broken and imperfect lives and tragic endings to bring attention to issues important to him and to his church to grapple with. He used their deaths to sanctify us and help us to struggle, to call us into the fire and onto the streets and into the world to live and to die. I've heard stuff, especially around Breonna Taylor. Yeah, I heard some really bad stuff. Like, yeah, it's sad that she died, but she was keeping company with the wrong dudes. That should teach you, don't date anybody with a criminal record. Right. I read this this synopsis of the events that said something like she was trying to help her boyfriend who shot a police officer. You know, wait, she was trying to help her criminal boyfriend who shot a police officer. And that's why she got shot. She shouldn't have been trying to help that fool. Right. That's why she got shot. There's no doubt that many of the lives lost in 2020 that got media attention were tied and intertwined to communities and histories and people that would factor into their deaths. But what an illustration for what we as Christians are called to and what our faith actually relies on. We know this story. Why are we surprised? We know how this works. This passage in Samuel is very familiar. Jesus, like Jonathan, was called and treated like a criminal. Like public enemy number one. And he was accused and took on the sin and judgment of us criminals. Us souls. He died in disgrace as, fa- as a fallen failed prince, right? Jesus was consoling us criminals behind a door. And then the people who shot at him, the people who went to crucify him, didn't know they were killing the Lord. But he shielded us. He, he, he died in disgrace again as a fallen prince with a scattered and displaced and soon to be dead kingdom. Jesus came to be our Jonathan. He came as a shield, as one who stays and is a friend and son to sinners like us. One, as David says in verse 26, who is very pleasant and whose love was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And that Jesus, like Jonathan, did not, did not, thank you, God, did not separate himself from broken lives. And he didn't run away when it was time to face our death and judgment. He didn't say, too bad, too sad, too evil. 
but he stayed with us up to our disgrace. He was incarcerated. He was the incarcerated glory. I mean, the incarnated glory of God that was slain on the world's high place as he died on the cross. For what? So that we could be ready to meet the Lord, to meet our destiny, clothed in holiness with the armor of God, to go to battle with and for this fallen world, to one day fulfill not just our destiny, but in that eulogy, Jesus died and suffered like Jonathan so that we potential souls could be cleaned and crowned and given holy and purpose in relationship with God like King David. This is your eulogy that Christ came and died for the ungodly, that he's come to shield the worst, to intertwine his life with others, to never leave us or forsake us, to like that faulty description, just the way it was described of Breonna Taylor, to put his arms around somebody who had a warrant on their lives and take the bullet for them. That's what Christ did for us. That's his eulogy for you and me and this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. We all sin, fall short of the glory of God. We've all been judged. It is clear, especially to you, Lord, how evil we are, how sometimes we can be, how self-absorbed we are. But you went to battle for us. You became our shield. And for the glory of your people, You were disgraced, stripped naked, and hung high in the high places on the cross. Lord, I pray for those who don't know a friend like that, who don't know a Savior like that, who haven't even met Christians like that. And even, Lord, for the Christians who've forgotten that their Lord is like that. And can't even see it from the fellow believers. It's all of war. It's all a battle. It's all about not getting along. It's all about fussing and fighting. Lord, give us the grace to experience the Lord dying for us. For our destiny in Christ. For the hope of our glory in Christ beyond the grave. David said, this eulogy will continue to be sung. Lord, thank you for singing our eulogy, never leaving, never forsaking us. I do pray for those believers who are martyred right right now, being disgraced, being told off, being mistreated in social media, being called liberal, being called Marxist, being called... uh, 
an ungodly capitalist being called um, whatever, Lord. Help us, Lord, to endure the death we are called to suffer as your people. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.